Well, good morning. My name is Paul Abdallah. If we've not had the opportunity to meet, I'd love to meet you after the service. I have the privilege, responsibility of serving uh, as one of the pastors here at Stafford Baptist Church. And it is a joy to gather with you this morning to worship our God, who we know as good. Well, have you ever experienced a breathtaking sunset? One that when you you saw it, you were were left in awe at the beauty. As you watched it, you you were trying to get as many different angles as you could to soak in the beauty, to savor the beauty of this sunset. I have the memory personally of, of one breathtaking sunset that I saw a couple of years ago while my family and I were vacationing in, in the Blue Ridge Mountains. We went up to a, an out, outlook and we saw the mountain line with towns kind of in and out of the mountains. And as the sun set, it really just set right over those mountains. It was quite breathtaking. And the first response that everyone in my family had was to take out our phones and start trying to take pictures. And if I was to put the, scripture, uh, p- put the picture up on the screen, most of you will know that, that while it would give you a glimpse of the beauty that was there, it cannot fully capture what we saw that evening. It was one of those moments, if you've had these, where you have to say, you have to see it for yourself. We can know in our minds that sunsets are beautiful. We can see pictures that remind us of the beauty. But unless we experience the, the sunset for ourselves, we, we still miss something of its beauty. Jonathan Edwards, an old Puritan pastor, said this similar about, about honey. He said, there is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. There's a difference between knowing a rational judgment that a sunset is beautiful, but sensing, feeling the beauty. Well, the same is true of our God and his goodness. We can know God is good, but that is far different than experiencing and savoring the goodness for ourselves. And today, The psalmist David will call us not just to know God is good in our minds, but to taste and see that the Lord is good. To experience in full for ourselves the goodness of our God. So if you have a Bible, please open it to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. If you don't have a Bible, you can uh, feel free to use one of those pew Bibles there in the pew pocket in front of you. You'll find Psalm 34 on page 460. Three, Psalm 34, taste and see. We'll read the, the whole psalm, beginning with the, the superscription placed just above the large number there, number 34. But before we read, it is right for us to, to stop and ask God for his help in prayer. So will you pray with me? Father, your word tells us that you are good and do good. Father, you alone are good. We are not good. We do not do good. And so, Father, with the psalmist, we pray this morning, teach us your statutes. Father, let us taste and see this morning from your word that you are good. 
May we know the blessing of taking refuge in you alone. Father, may we know you more. Not just in our minds, but in our very experience of your goodness. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word word of the Lord, Psalm 34. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Well, friends, our one-sentence summary of this psalm, our main point of the sermon this morning is this. Savor the goodness of God as He delivers the righteous from every affliction. Savor the goodness of God as He delivers the righteous from every affliction. This psalm is calling us to savor God's goodness. Like we would savor a good meal or a a beautiful sunset to experience and enjoy the, the full goodness of God for ourselves. David has been delivered from his enemy and this deliverance will lead him to to call all people to rejoice, to relish, and to find refuge in their God. God is good. And he makes that goodness known to us. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, I hope you will savor the goodness of our God as he delivers the righteous from every affliction. Well, as we consider this call to to savor, to taste and see that the Lord is good, we we will see three ways that we can savor God's goodness in this psalm. And those three ways will be our three points this morning. 
First, rejoice in God's deliverance. In verses 1 through 7, rejoice in God's deliverance. Relish in God's abundant provision. In verses 8 through 14. And reside in God's redeeming care. Reside in God's redeeming care. The beauty of this psalm is that it is an acrostic poem. So each of the lines begins with the next letter of the the Hebrew alphabet. And it's chiastic in its structure. So verses 8 through 14 are really the, the key of unlocking what David is trying to communicate to us this morning. To taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, let's begin with our first point. Rejoice. Rejoice in God's personal deliverance. Rejoice in God's personal deliverance. Well, we want to begin this morning first looking at the the superscription. It's that little description at the beginning of our psalm. And it proves extremely helpful this morning. And these superscriptions are inspired part of Scripture. This psalm doesn't just begin with verse 1. It begins with this superscription that we will read the, super, the use of superscription varies among the Psalms. So last week we saw in Psalm 33 there was no superscription. In Psalm 31 and 32, they told us the author and maybe the, the tune or the kind of song that it was. But ours this morning here in Psalm 34 is, is not only telling us who wrote it, but really the situation in which David penned the Psalm. Look, look back at that. He writes, Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. This superscription is a summary of the events that take place in 1 Samuel 21 verses 10 through 15. In that portion of 1 Samuel, David has been anointed king by Samuel. He has defeated Goliath, but Saul is still king. His kingdom will end. It will not pass on to his son. David will, will reign as God has promised, but, but at this moment, David is not king. And so David is fleeing Saul. As David's reputation begins to precede him, they will sing of of Saul and David that Saul struck down his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And the current king Saul was jealous. And so much of 1 Samuel is David literally fleeing for his life. And we get many wonderful psalms born out of the suffering and the deliverance that comes again and again. Here in in Psalm 34, we have one of those examples. David has sought to take refuge in Gath, which was a a town of the Philistines, not a town of Israel. In fact, it was, in all ironies, Goliath's hometown. And there, David, having escaped Israel, is, is hiding. But he's discovered, brought before the king, likely thinking he's about to die. And we read, as in the superscription, that he then changed his behavior Listen to what, how 1 Samuel describes it in verse 13. So he, David, changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. He made marks in the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. If spittle makes you as uncomfortable as it does me, we're in the same boat. You can imagine this morning... Right, an, an unkept man. He's been fleeing for many years at this point. And he's got long hair. He's, he's not shaving or cutting or any of that. And here he is, spit drooling down his face as he makes marks along the door. Surely this sort of act wouldn't work. They would just kill him anyways. 
But as we read in the superscription of Psalm 34, the king doesn't kill him. No, they, they drive him out and he goes away. Abimelech, the term used in Psalm 34, is, is likely just a general term for Philistine kings. David's likely connecting his, his life to the life of Abraham and Isaac, who both dealt with Abimelechs in their time. But I want you to, to put yourself in David's shoes. You've been running from one enemy, only to find yourself face to face with another enemy. And in desperation, you act like a madman. And God delivers How would you feel in that moment? Probably an overwhelming sense of relief. This is what we see in David. Look down at verse 1. He writes, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. He, He pours out in committed praise to the Lord out of relief and joy that he has been delivered. Yet David is not fully delivered. It will be another few years before Saul dies and David is named king. He will continue to run. But even as he continues to be persecuted and afflicted, he will praise. He will not boast in his own plans, but in the Lord. See, David knows that it was not his his ploy of madness that is at the heart of his escape. It was the Lord who delivered him. It's not our wisdom or our expertise that, that allows us to be delivered? No, it is the Lord. And so David's soul makes his boast in him. But that's not all. David then calls others to, to join him in that praise. Right? Look at the second half of verse 2. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. David knows himself to not be the only sufferer in Israel. In fact, this psalm probably began to be used by Jews who were dispersed. As a way of of saying, even in the midst of, of all suffering, we shall with David magnify the Lord. That is, to to make much of God. David wants others with him to to glorify God with and to exalt his name together. And we're reminded of a truth here. The the joy of personal deliverance is not meant to be enjoyed privately only. Just like the joy of a good meal is better with friends. Or the pleasure of a beautiful sunset is, is more pleasurable with others around us. So too the joy of deliverance that comes from the Lord is all the more joyful as we share in it with others who have been delivered. Well, David begins to describe in verses 4 through 7 what it is that's causing him such joy. Look look again at at verse 4. I sought the Lord, and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. David sought the Lord, that is, he he sought Him in prayer. Right? We we see in verse 6, this poor man, that's David's description of himself, cried. He cried out, and the Lord heard him. And saved him out of all his troubles. You feel the relief of David. Death was on the doorstep, but but now he has experienced freedom and rescue. All who look to the Lord are radiant, David says in verse 5. Their faces shall never be put to shame. Just as Moses' face shone after he talked with God, so too all who look upon the Lord, their deliverer, will not be put to shame. 
He tells us the angel of the Lord is encamped around those who fear him and delivers them. God sends his servants to minister on his behalf to his people. They are well protected in every circumstance. We see throughout these four verses that the Lord provides deliverance, radiance, salvation, and protection. And really, these are expressions of God's goodness. That's why David in verse 8 will go on to explain, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And so we see here an expression of God's goodness is in his deliverance of the afflicted. His personal deliverance of those who are afflicted. All who call upon the Lord will be heard. This is not only what Psalm 34 teaches us. It's taught throughout the Bible. Psalm 86 verse 5 we read, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to who? All who call upon you. God's deliverance is an expression of his goodness. His hearing and answering of our calls is his goodness to us. And because God is good, he does not have to be persuaded. No, what does Psalm 86.5 say? He abounds in steadfast love to all who call upon him in the midst of trouble. In 1 Peter 5, we're told to cast all our anxieties on God because he cares for us. And friends, some of you this morning are in the midst of troubles and anxieties and you have yet to be delivered out of them. You're dealing with constant and chronic pain or sickness. You're in dealing with the anxieties of feeling like you're, you're not measuring up at your job or at home. You're dealing with the difficulty of building relationships or the trouble of sin that just won't go away. Brothers and sisters, trust that God is good. Don't stop crying out to him in the midst of trouble. This is what David did. He sought the Lord and he was answered. He cried out and the Lord heard. And what did the Lord do? He saved and delivered. And friends, this is what Jesus has done. He trusted God's goodness so much that even in the face of death, in the garden, Jesus cried out to God in desperation to the point of blood falling like sweat. And his prayer was heard. Jesus delivered through his resurrection. And so too now, like David proclaims, all who look to Jesus will be radiant. They will be transformed from one image of glory to another. That should make us shout, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. David's joy in his personal deliverance is one way he responds to the goodness of God. But David wants more than people to share in the joy of deliverance. No, he wants the people of God to experience for themselves the goodness of God, to relish, to cherish, to savor the goodness of God in his abundant provision. Which brings us to our second point, relish in God's abundant provision. Relish in God's abundant provision. Well, as we said, this really is the beginning of the the, the center of this psalm. And David, having recalled the Lord's personal deliverance, 
now calls the people of God to experience the goodness of God for themselves. That is that call, that that popular verse that we all know. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The language of tasting and seeing is, is figurative. We cannot literally eat God's goodness like a piece of chicken. Nor can we see God. He is invisible. But we can enjoy His goodness. We experience, we can behold and savor God's goodness in, in some sort of real, tangible way. To say the Lord is good is to, to summarize the very core of who God is. He is good. When God reveals His glory to Moses in Exodus 33, He makes all His goodness Pass before Moses. Listen to that verse, Exodus 33, verse 19. And he, that is God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God makes his goodness pass before Moses. It is how God reveals himself And the goodness of God is a broad category encompassing a a few of the moral characteristics of God. God's generosity, His mercy as we saw in Exodus 33, 19, His grace and patience. These are all expressions of God's goodness. Jesus will tell us no one is good except God alone. Only God is good. And God is fully good. He is like the sun, all light and not one drop of darkness. As one author says, to say God is good is like saying milk is white. It is who God is. And when you see goodness, you are by definition seeing God. His goodness is his overflowing bounty by which he blesses his creation and creatures. His overflowing bounty by which he blesses. This is why at creation, all that God made was good. Because it had to be. It came from the one who is good. To confess then that the Lord is good is at the the very heart of what we believe. If we do not believe that the Lord is good, our faith falls apart. This is why we see when Satan attacks, this confession is often what Satan goes after. In the garden, Adam and Eve were tempted to believe God was not good. They were tempted to believe that his rules and his laws were not good. That his word was not true or best. And they fell for the temptation. And even now, Satan attacks our faith in the goodness of God. As we see loved ones destroyed by a disease. As we see wars wage on. As we see unborn babies killed or unplanned pregnancies destroy lives of the mothers and fathers. We wonder how can God be good? Yet David, in the midst of affliction and trials, knows He has experienced it. He has beheld firsthand God's goodness in the face of affliction and he wants us now to cherish it as well. God is good. He must be. He chooses to be and he wills to let it be known and enjoyed his goodness. And therefore David can say, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
David has experienced God's goodness, but he wants all of us, all the people to experience it as well. Not just to know about it, but to cherish it. You see, when we experience that which is good, we, we want to share it with others. I saw an example of that this weekend when the, the news of Roe v. Wade being overturned, my, my phone began to ding and ding again and ding again. People texting, calling, sending messages who were in small part experiencing the goodness of God, sharing it. And this is David's point. He doesn't just tell us that the Lord is good. He doesn't just define God is good or milk is white. No, he bids us to taste for ourselves. To come experience, to drink, to taste, to see God's goodness. Friends, have you experienced the goodness of God? Are you today taking pleasure in God's goodness? What does it look like to, to, to experience God's goodness? Well, it looks like taking refuge in Him. That's what David goes on to say there in verse, the second half of verse 8. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. This is what David has done in verses 1 through 7, right? He sought the Lord, that is, sought refuge in the Lord, and he answered Him. The one who experiences God's goodness is the one who takes refuge in Him. David goes on to, to bid us to, to, to continue to taste and see that the Lord is good as he calls us to fear the Lord because those who fear him have no lack. Look at verses 9 and 10. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. David is inviting us to to enter the goodness of God as we fear the Lord because the Lord will abundantly provide. You know, even one of the strongest animals on the planet, the the lion, will suffer hunger and want. But not those who seek the Lord. Not those who take refuge in Him. They will have no lack. They will lack no good thing. That which they need will be provided. And this is the second expression of God's goodness. His abundant provision. God is good and provides what is good so that there is no lack of any good thing. And we have the assurance that those who take refuge in the Lord will lack no good thing because the God who is good has promised it. Now, does this mean that the one who who takes refuge in God will have no affliction? Certainly not. David will go on to write in verse 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Friends, this teaches us that sometimes affliction can be a good thing. It feels like a negative thing. It feels like a hard thing. but But the Lord tells us we will lack no good thing. And times, affliction can be used as a good thing. I think what what David is getting at is that those who seek the Lord, those who take refuge in Him, will be content. Like the Apostle Paul, who had new afflictions to the the, the 10th, 100th degree, yet said in Philippians 4, not that I am speaking of being in need. What do you mean, Paul? How are you not in need? He's imprisoned, he's probably hungry. 
And yet he says, I am not speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And how is he to be content? He can do all things in Christ who strengthens him. And so when David, who at this point in his life was living in caves and not a castle, says that those who fear the Lord will lack no good thing, this is what he means. The one who takes refuge in God has all that they need in Christ. David might be in a cave, but he is not under the ground. He might be fleeing, but one day he will wear the crown. God in his goodness will provide every good thing. But the invitation doesn't stop there. David goes on to invite all the children to come listen to him. You see, one cannot experience the goodness of the one who is good without beginning to do good themselves. We actually experience the goodness of God as we do good. Look at verses 11 through 14. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. David wants to instruct the people what it means to fear the Lord. If it, if it is those who fear the Lord that have no lack, what does it look like to fear God? How will they learn to fear God? Well, they will live in a way that fears the Lord. Learning to fear God by living as, we, as if we do fear God is like learning respect for the chainsaw by using the chainsaw. One cannot fully understand what it means to respect that that ginormous tool until you feel it in your hands, vibrating. Feel it cutting through the wood. So too, David says, you will not understand fully the fear of God, which leads to a life of many days, until we live it out. We grow in our fear of God as we live out in our fear of the Lord. David highlights ways that we can do this. We keep our tongues from evil. We turn away from evil and do good. That is, our, our words should reflect the goodness of our God. Rather than, than speaking that which is dishonest or untruthful, we should speak words of truthfulness. Those who have experienced the goodness of God should speak what is good and upbuilding. But not just our tongues and our actions. We are to turn away from evil. That is, we are to repent. This is, this is what it means to repent. To stop doing evil and start doing good. To seek peace and pursue it. We are to humble ourselves before the Lord. Turn from our evil ways and to seek peace. Friends, you can taste and see that the Lord is good as you do that which is good, even in the face of suffering. This is how we saw Peter encouraging the church in 1 Peter 3, our scripture reading this morning. To press on in doing good, even in the face of suffering, as a way of tasting the goodness of our God. But maybe you're here this morning and in your mind you know God is good. But you're finding it hard to relish, right? To to sit in, to cherish, to savor His goodness. Let me encourage you to consider this. How has God been good to you this morning? What expressions of His goodness are you seeing? They they might be small. 
You know, often when we haven't eaten in a while, when we haven't tasted in a while, that's, that's all we can handle. Small portions as we rebuild our appetites. And the same is true with God's goodness. Start small. Look for small ways you see God's goodness in causing the sun to rise this morning. In the provision of a breakfast or a place to sleep or a working car. In the provision of a song that we sung with truths that filled you with joy. And a smile from a friend. Relish in God's abundant provision. For those who fear the Lord will have no lack. David has experienced God's goodness. He invites us in to taste and see of that goodness. And as we relish in God's goodness, we are to reside in the care of our good God. To reside in God's redeeming care. Our third point this morning, reside in God's redeeming care. Well, once again, David moves into verse 15. He's moving away from the instructions of of how to live, but really, why are we to live this way? Why are we to live in a way that turns away from evil and does good? And ultimately, I think we see it's because God cares for his people. We're going to go a blitz overview of, of, of all the language of affection from God for his people here in verses 15 through 22. We see in verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears are toward their cry. Or verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Or verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Or verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Or verse 20, he keeps all his bones, not not one of them is broken. Or verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Friends, again and again and again, we are thrust into the heart of our God. He cares for his people. He is near to them. He saves the crushed. His eyes and ears are turned towards them. But he doesn't just care for them and then is powerless. No, he cares and will fully redeem. That's what we see there at the end of of, of verse 22. The Lord redeems the life of his servant. And so just as his deliverance and provision are expressions of his goodness, so too is his affection and the full and final redemption of his people. God is good. He is so good that he is given in love for rebellious sinners like you and me. He is given in love for those who are broken hearted and crushed in spirit. Friends, your weakness does not drive God away. He is moved toward us in our weakness. He has moved toward us as we cry to Him. He has moved towards us as we see our need and humble ourselves. As we see that we are brokenhearted, crushed. He is the only safe place for us to reside. And by reside, I mean He's the only safe place for us to take refuge. He's the only safe shelter in the midst of the afflictions of this life. 
Because his care is a redeeming care, he will fully and finally redeem his people. Friends, if you want to experience the goodness of God, remind yourself of this. God cares for you. If you reside in His care, you are safe no matter the afflictions that may come your way. It may not look as if He cares for you, but He does. As Charles Spurgeon said, God is too good to be unkind. And He is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace His hand... We must trust his heart. I think this is partly David's point. Even in the midst of of pain and sickness and sin and financial problems and awful afflictions that we face, in all of these we are safe. Though we might not see the Lord's hand, he will deliver the righteous through them all. And we can trust that because he cares for us. He will redeem the life of his servants. Friends, we are almost home. Our Redeemer stands at gates of gold and He will call us home. Taste and see that the Lord is good. But not all will be redeemed, David says. Look with me at verses 16 and and verse 21. In verse 16 we read, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. In verse 21, affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Those who are committed to doing evil, hating righteousness, will be fully and finally condemned. Just as confident as we are in the Lord's redemption of those who take refuge in Him, we are just as confident in His condemnation of those who do not. The very memory of them will be cut off from the earth forever. I wonder if this is hard for you to hear this morning. Do you struggle to believe that God is good and yet still apportions out His divine wrath and punishment? But friends, God could not be good and leave injustice to reign freely. A judge is not good when they let a murderer go off without a punishment. We praise parents when they dispense proper judgment for a child's wrong behavior. And I would guess that you do not appraise lying and stealing as equal to honesty and generosity. And so in the same way, God would not be good, as one pastor says, if he were indifferent to goodness itself. This is what we're, we're seeing in verses 16 and 21. Part of God's g- expression of His goodness is that He is good, not indifferent to goodness, but good in all things. And so God in His goodness must judge all those who do not align themselves with His anointed one. But those who align themselves with the anointed one, the the righteous one, those who, who find refuge in the Lord will be delivered from every affliction. And that really becomes our question. How can we be sure that what David is writing here is true? How can we be sure that the Lord will redeem the life of His servant? That none who take refuge in Him will be condemned? 
Well, it's because the Lord has delivered his anointed one. We see this first in the Lord's deliverance of David. I'm not sure if you noticed this, but but David in verses 15 through 22, really verses 15 to 18, is is picking up themes from his own personal deliverance in verses 4 through 7, and now applying them to all the righteous. Look back at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So just as David sought the Lord and he was answered in verse 4, we're told that the eyes and the ears of the Lord are toward the righteous in verse 15. And while those who look to the Lord are radiant, their faces never ashamed, it is the very face of the Lord that is against those who do evil. And just as David cried out in verse 6 and was saved from his troubles, so too when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them from all their troubles. And just as the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them in verse 7, the Lord himself is near to the brokenhearted and delivers, saves the crushed in spirit. What was true of David is also true of his people. And we can have confidence because it was true for David that it will be true for us. But it was not just David whom this was true of. See, in verse 20, maybe that verse stood out to you. It's a little bit of an odd verse. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. This is making reference to the, the, the righteous one. I think the, the righteous there in, in verse 19 is probably singular. He delivers him out of them all. He's, David is speaking of a, of a particular righteous sufferer. And he's connecting it all the way back to the Passover. I don't know if you're familiar, but, but the Passover was the, the climatic moment of Israel's rescue from Egypt as God would kill the, the firstborn son and all the homes that did not paint their doorframe with the blood of a lamb. And through that judgment, God delivers his people. He calls them then to practice a feast that would remember the Passover. And in his instructions about that feast, we read this in Exodus 12 verse 46. It shall be eaten in one's house, that is the the Passover lamb. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. The bones of the Passover lamb were not to be broken. It was an undefiled lamb that provided the deliverance for the people of God from Egypt. And it is an undefiled, unbroken, righteous sufferer that provides the deliverance for the people of God here in Psalm 34. David is aligning himself as as now taking the place of that Passover lamb as he is preserved, unbroken through trials. It means the preservation of all those who align themselves with David. In other words, the delivering of the anointed one is confirmation that all those who follow him will be delivered too. The goodness of God to his anointed one assures us of his goodness to all who align themselves with that anointed one. But are we aligned ourselves with with David? No, David is not the true anointed one. He, He merely bridges the gap between the Passover lamb and one who was to come. He pictures for us Jesus. 
Jesus is the true anointed one. Jesus is the the perfectly righteous one. Of him alone can it say many are his afflictions, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. It was he that was perfectly righteous, without sin, afflicted with pain and sickness, never sinning. And this Jesus went to the cross to die, not for his own sins, but but for our sins. See, when we are afflicted, we, we do sin. We pour out in complaining and, 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 and disgruntlement towards our affliction. We sin in many ways, but, but Jesus never did. And on the cross, we see the legs broken of the, the two others who were crucified with Jesus. A, a common practice to speed it up. But when they came to Jesus, John's gospel tells us they did not break his legs because he was already dead. John goes on to make this observation in verse 36 of chapter 19. For these things, that is the, the, the non-breaking of Jesus' legs, the fact that they were not broken, were written so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Just as the Passover lamb was unbroken, and the righteous sufferer in Psalm 34 is unbroken. Jesus is the fulfillment of those things. He is the true Passover lamb and the true righteous sufferer. He is the true anointed one, delivered from every affliction, brought through death and raised on the third day, so that any who look to Him in faith, turning from their sin, will be delivered and will be redeemed. Jesus condemned so that we would be redeemed. Friends, the goodness of God is no clearer than when we look to Jesus Christ. Taste and see that the Lord is good by beholding and savoring the the burial, the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And if you have never experienced the goodness of God in Jesus Christ, heed the call of David today to taste and see You must see and experience this goodness of Jesus for yourself. You cannot survive off of the the experience of another. You can't survive because your parents tasted and saw, or because your spouse has tasted and seen. No, you must personally know the goodness of God in deliverance, provision, and redemption through Jesus. So let me encourage you to find someone who has experienced this goodness. Allow them to share that goodness with you, to bring you to Jesus, where you can taste and see that the Lord is good. And church, let me encourage you to reside in God's redeeming care today. Take shelter in Him. Align yourself through repentance and faith with God's anointed one, Jesus Christ. You know, for those of us who have have already tasted and seen, we can be tempted to to just survive off of that first experience. Maybe you're here and you are a Christian and you remember that first experience. I hope you do. But we are not just to to survive off of that that one experience. We we are to continue to experience it. Listen to what 1 Peter 2, verses 2 and 3 says. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter says, if we have tasted that the Lord is good, we long for more of that which is good. 
often we apply this verse to, to reading God's word, but I think it's, it's more than that. Peter will go on in verse 4 to say, as you come to him. That is, as you come to Jesus. Friends, to, to long for the pure spiritual milk is to come to Jesus again and again and again. Taste and see that the Lord is good by coming to Christ. Relish, cherish, behold, enjoy life in Christ today. He has delivered you. He has abundantly provided for you all more than you can ask or think or imagine. He cares for you. He has redeemed you. And will call us home one day soon. You know, this is what we do when we partake in the Lord's Supper together. We are coming to Jesus, tasting and seeing in a very practical, tangible way that the Lord is good. Savoring the goodness of God as we remember that He delivers the righteous from every affliction. Because God has delivered Jesus, He will deliver us. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, we say with David, we will bless the Lord at all times. Your praise shall continually be in our mouth. Our soul this morning makes its boast in you. Father, we give you praise because you are good. Assure us of your goodness. Let us rejoice in it as we remember our deliverance. May we relish in it as we see your abundant provision that we may lack no good thing. May we reside in your goodness as we reside in your redeeming care. May we this week taste and see that the Lord is good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.